Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, once again, we lift up our hearts and our minds to you. We pray during this time as we open your word and, and expound upon it, explain it, and apply it. Lord, that you would open our hearts. I know there's no power in me to do anything that is of eternal good. Lord, it's not the, it's not the ability of my speech. It's not the adequacy of my preparation but it is the power of your word. And Lord, I pray that I would not try to add anything, any, man, any of man's wisdom or anything to it, but Father, that I will just open up your scriptures this morning and let them breathe, that your people will feel the fresh wind of your spirit upon their hearts. Move me aside. Make me your own. Help me to share these things with you. It's your name we pray. Amen. We have the wonderful privilege this morning, once again, of returning to the Gospel of Matthew. So in Matthew chapter 8, we're going to be beginning in verse 1. And we're going to be looking through verse 17 this morning. And so Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. And while you're, while you're turning there, uh, and I failed to get the page number real quick, I actually brought this up here to look it up before I got up here, but Matthew 8 is, uh, is on page 966, if you want to use the, the Bible in the pew in front of you, 966 or Matthew chapter 8. You know, I think most of us are pretty familiar with the Western forms of Christianity. You have, uh, if, if not intimately familiar, you're at least aware of them. We have, obviously, the Roman Catholic Church. We have Protestantism and uh, all its various iterations of that, of which we're a part of. You have uh, the renewal movements that happened in the 18th and 19th centuries, and even the cults that rose up during those times as well, that were kind of a, kind of a perverted part of those renewal movements. But probably not, most of us are probably not familiar with the Eastern side of Christianity. Things like the Greek Orthodox Church and the Armenian Church and the Coptic Church and, and all of those. There's a lot of their forms and uh, things are kind, of, are kind of strange to us. And you don't hear about them a lot in the news. But we did hear about the Russian Orthodox Church in the news this week. Um, the Archbishop of the Russian Orthodox Church, he would be kind of the equivalent to the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church, if you will, or the Archbishop of, of England. It's a guy by the name of Kirill, and he is a close and personal friend of Vladimir Putin, and let's just say that like attracts like. They're very similar. Uh, because Putin has experienced such, such embarrassing defeats in Ukraine, he is now trying to force just about every Russian male to uh, join the army. And of course, you know, there's a big flight. Uh, many of them are trying to escape Russia as we speak so that they will not be conscripted into the army. They don't believe in the cause. We certainly need to be praying for them. But, uh, but as, as, as trying to help Putin with this, the archbishop put out a statement this week and and this is one that I think we should pay attention to because it, it really kind of teaches us a couple of things. And here's what he said. 
He said the church, among other things, and by the way, it was a very politically loaded statement. It, was, it sounds on the surface like it's something a normal church leader would say, but the, he chose some vocabulary very specifically to Putin's cause. But, but here's, here's the part that I was interested in. He said the church realizes that if somebody, driven by a sense of duty and the need to fulfill their oath, goes to what their duty calls them, and if a person dies in the performance of this duty then they have undoubtedly committed an act equivalent to sacrifice. They will have sacrificed themselves for others, and therefore we believe that this sacrifice washes away all sins that the person has committed. This is nothing short of propaganda. In fact, it's really no different than what the church did during the Crusades. They made the very similar promise that all who go and fight for the Crusades will, will be granted immediate and, immediate and automatic eternal life. And basically, the archbishop trying to build the Russian army promised every man that if you die on the battlefield, then your sins are automatically forgiven and you have eternal life. So I think there's a couple things that we can learn from that statement. As, as astonished as we are by it, and I saw a couple of you just shaking your heads in disbelief, and that's exactly the reaction we should have. But I think there's a couple of things we can learn from it. Number one is that there is always a temptation in the church to try to grow the kingdom using the weapons and the tools of the world. There is always that temptation. And we may not resort to war, we may not resort to guns and swords, but we can resort to other things that are maybe not quite as violent, but just as manipulative and just as worldly in order to try and grow the kingdom. Paul says in, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, in verses three and four, he says that for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We must remember that the weapons of our warfare are not the tools of the world. We cannot use the world or the flesh to achieve spiritual ends. But secondly, is that the extent of the deception among those who are lost, those who are outside of the kingdom, there are people who are undoubtedly joining up in the Russian army today precisely because they believe that lie that they were told by Kirill. And I can't help to wonder, I don't know how many there are, but I can't help but to wonder how many people have gone hopelessly following after that lie and yet how many people are in our community today who are following similar lies, believing that their soul is safe and yet they are headed for a devil's hell because they have bought into similar lies. And so my purpose this morning, my goal is that we would grow a passion for reaching those who are outside the kingdom, reaching those who are deceived, reaching those who are, who are believing lies. And that's what I wanna do. And so this morning, looking at Matthew chapter eight, verse one, I wanna begin here by showing you this. It says, when Jesus came down from the mountain, and let's stop right there for a second and ask ourselves, what mountain are we referring to? Well, obviously, this goes back to Matthew chapter five, verse one, and it goes back to the Sermon on the Mountain or the Sermon on the Mount that we have, we have just gone to. 
It's a, it's a direct connection to the former section of Matthew that, we, that we've already covered. You remember from Matthew chapter four all the way through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter seven, is really the first major section of the, of the gospel of Matthew. You have the birth narratives and, and kind of the introduction. But as far as the teaching on discipleship, we find that the very first section is Matthew 4 through the Sermon on the Mount. And we saw that it all revolved around life in the kingdom, the life of the disciple. And so now the question that we ask is, is what is the mission of the disciple? What is it that we have been given life to do? Why is it that we are still here? Why is it that when God saves us, he doesn't automatically take us into heaven to be with him for all eternity? How much sometimes we would like that, amen? But he doesn't do that. And why doesn't he do that? And that is because we have a, a new life that we are called to, a new mission and a new purpose that we have. And so from Matthew chapter, really from 7, 28, all the way to Matthew, through Matthew chapter 10, verse 42, the second section of Matthew deals with the mission of the church or the mission of the disciples. We have been brought into the kingdom. We are living life in the kingdom. But now what is the purpose of the kingdom? What is it that we are doing? And that's what we find in Matthew beginning in chapter eight, all the way through chapter 10. It's the expansion or the growth of the kingdom. And since we talked about the life of the disciple in the last section, I wanted to keep it this way to say, this is the mission of the disciple. You are saved to be sent, beloved. The church, we are not the church triumphant. We are the church militant. This morning in Sunday school, we were talking about some of these wonderful metaphors of, of the church, the bride, sons, inheritance, and all those things. But there is one metaphor that doesn't get mentioned that often, and that is the church is an army. The church is an army that is marching against the gates of hell, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so the church is an army. Beloved, we are soldiers. We are, we are, we are here to fight in a spiritual war, and the weapons of our warfare are not guns and swords, but they are the weapons of the spirit that we have been given in the life of the kingdom, and now we are to use those weapons to promote the expansion of the kingdom. And so to help us understand that, in Matthew chapter 8 through 9, we have a series of 10 miracles that are gonna help us understand what the mission is about. And then in Matthew chapter 10, in the first five verses or so, we find the calling of the apostles, the calling of the church, essentially. And then we have the sending out of the same that brings us all the way through the chapter 10. And so this morning, these first three miracles that Matthew gives us kind of form a section in and of themselves. And what we're going to find is all three of them focus on people who were outside of the commonwealth of Israel. People who, for whatever reason, were not allowed to partake in the kingdom and the life of the community. And so this morning, we're going to talk about what it is. The first part of our mission is that we are to reach those who are outside of the kingdom. We are to reach those who are outside the kingdom. And so how do we do that? 
How do we develop a passion for this? How, what, how do we understand this? And, and this first three set of miracles, Jesus is gonna give us some principles. Matthew, through the life of Jesus, is gonna give us some principles that we can follow. I do apologize. I wasn't able to get a, a PowerPoint this morning. So uh, I'm going to just tell you what they are. Number one is so that Christ may cleanse them, so that he may cleanse them. Number two, so that he may bring them in. Number three, that he might save them. So that he might cleanse them, so that he might bring them in, and that he might save them. So let's look, beginning in verse two. Number one, we are to reach those who are outside of the kingdom. Why? So that Christ may cleanse them. So that Christ may cleanse them. In verse two, behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him. Some of your, some of your translations may say worship before him saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, you know that leprosy was um, one of the most dreaded diseases in the ancient world. In fact, I've always imagined this picture that, um, you know, when you see this in the movies, you have this big crowd that's following Jesus and a leper just walks up to him and kneels down before him and says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And, and it's all quiet around as people watch this, right? I imagine when this happened, somebody yelled fire and boom, they are all gone screaming. All right? I mean, this is a, this is a situation that nobody wanted to be a part of. Leprosy was the most devastating and most feared disease of the ancient world. In fact, uh, we don't actually know what it's talking about. It, it's probably a variety of skin diseases, the worst of which is one that today is referred to as Hansen's disease. I imagine that's probably what is involved here. But uh, that's what you think of when you think of leprosy most of the time. But the truth is, we really don't know. But for the leper, for him to approach him like this, he was risking being stoned. He was, he was risking his life. But I imagine that it was probably worth it because the worst part of leprosy at this day and time was not the physical disease itself, but it was the social implications that came with it. In fact, you can see this in Leviticus chapter, chapter 13. You see, a person who was declared to be a leper or a leprous person, our, our translation is very kind here. So a leprous person, one who has the disease, he shall, he shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and everywhere he goes, he has to cry out, unclean, unclean, unclean. And even worse than that was the hopelessness. In verse 46, it says, and he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease, he is unclean. He shall live alone and he shall live outside of the camp. In other words, he was cast out. He was helpless. He was hopeless. He was despairing. He had no options. There was no one he could go to. There was nowhere he could go. Nothing he could do. He was separated from all of his friends, all of his family, even his very home was taken away from him. And so he sees the crowd walking up and he's, he's heard of Jesus. And, and I imagine by now, this is not chronological, so we don't know exactly at what point in Jesus's ministry this happened. 
but I imagine he's heard of him. He sees this crowd and he has nothing to lose and in absolute and total desperation, he risks everything to run up to Jesus. He knows something in his life, something in his heart has awakened his spirit so that he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is able to heal him. What he doesn't know is whether or not he's willing. It's whether or not he's willing. And to be honest with you, this is one of my most favorite miracles of all of Jesus's miracles. Because at this point, he comes down, he says, Jesus, if, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And perhaps in what must have been a shocking expression of tenderness, Jesus, the Lord, stretches out his hand. Notice that phrase, underline it if you want, because there's no unintentional touching here. There's no sense that Jesus just kind of bumped into him. But he is intentional that, that I imagine the leper to some degree kept some degree of, of, of distance from the Lord, trying to be just as respectful as he could and nails down before him. But Jesus stretches his hand out to him and touches him. This is probably the first human contact that this guy has had in an untold number of years. Can you imagine? Every time you go to shake someone's hand, hi, how you doing? They're like, Shh. can you imagine living with that your whole life? Can you imagine that not a single person will do anything as, as courteous as even shaking your hand? And yet that's what this man has lived with. That's where this man is coming from. And the Lord intentionally reaches out his hand. And more than that, he says, I am willing. Be cleansed. And what an amazing statement. These, these five little words, five little words, I am willing, be cleansed. We see both the power of God and the compassion of God. In five little words. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that amazing? Jesus could have healed him with merely a word. He could have done that. In fact, that's exactly what he's gonna do next. But here he touches him. Here the Lord does something extra. And beloved, when you're reading the Gospels and the Gospels detail that the Lord takes an extra step to do something, to heal someone, there's something significant there that you should pay attention to. You see, because Jesus, by reaching out and touching him legally, he becomes unclean. In fact, that's exactly what the book of Numbers says. And I don't remember the exact reference, but it should be on the board, right? Numbers of course I didn't. Uh, Numbers chapter 19, verse 22. Numbers 19, verse 22, it says, and whatever the unclean person touches shall be unclean, and anyone who touches an unclean thing shall be unclean. You see, Jesus, by reaching out and touching this leper, legally, he becomes unclean. And yet there's no indication that Jesus had to go through the steps of cleansing. Historically, he may have had to, to obey the law, but we don't know that. There's no reference to it. Matthew doesn't give it to us. 
Instead, what he's doing is that Jesus, by touching him, is taking on his uncleanness so that the leper then from Jesus can become clean. There's identification here. And that the Lord is taking on his uncleanness on himself so that the leper in return can become clean in Christ. What a beautiful example, isn't it? Jesus could have healed him with merely a word, but he didn't. He identified with the leper. Like him, he took on his uncleanness in order to make him clean. Beloved, that's the point of verse four, why he tells him to go to the priest. Because he wants the leper to become legally clean because in healing him, Jesus has become legally unclean and yet there's nothing about Christ that is unclean. Instead, his cleanness passed on to the leper and the leper became clean. And therefore, the law, through the identification of Christ, recognizes his cleanness, just like it does for us. You know, I don't think I could give a better illustration than that one. I don't think I could give a better explanation of what Christ has done for us. But look just for a second in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's turn there together, First, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. What, what impact should this have on us? How, how should we respond to this? Number, other than in worship and praise and love for the one who has made us clean. But, but how should we go on and how should we respond to this? Look what he says, beginning in verse 17, Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all of this is from God through Christ has reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, watch this, here's a big point. Verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. What is an ambassador? Someone who goes to another country and represents the interest of his own country in a foreign land. And beloved, we are representing the interest of our king in a foreign world. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. How? Verse 21, because for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, Christ took on our unrighteousness on the cross. Not that he became unrighteous himself any more than he became unclean from the leper. But he took on that, that legal status. He took on our unrighteousness on the cross so that in return, you and I can become the righteousness of God in Christ. I can't give a better illustration and the leper. So he desires to cleanse them, beloved. He desires to, to cleanse us and make us whole. And he has done that by taking on our uncleanness on the cross. But more so than that, he desires not only to cleanse them, but he also desires to bring them. Let's, let's move on in, in verse five. 
And Jesus is coming to Capernaum. A centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus says to him, I will come and heal him. Now let's stop right there again. Because when Jesus is coming into Capernaum, another outsider comes to him. Another one who is outside the commonwealth of Israel. Another one who is is not part of the kingdom. It is a centurion. And, And in case you don't know what a centurion is, it is a Roman soldier. In fact, they were really the professional class of soldiers in the Roman army. They were the ones who were constricted and they, they took on this rank and they, they commanded roughly, it's not exact, but roughly about 100 soldiers. So, so that's why you get the name centurion. It's actually related to the term century or cent or something like that. And so this centurion comes to him. But what is important to Matthew is that he is a centurion. But, but what Matthew doesn't tell us, but what some of the other gospels is, is that unlike the leper, this centurion is actually well-respected. He's well-respected in the community. In fact, Luke tells us a lot of good that this man did. In fact, uh, Matthew doesn't give us all the details, but in Luke, we find that this man actually appealed to Jewish leaders to come to Jesus on his behalf, and they did so. And in fact, if you look in Luke chapter seven, verses four and five, here's what they say to Jesus. They say, this man is worthy. This man's worthy for you to do this for him. Why? Because he loves our nation. And he's the one that built us our synagogue. This is a man who was loved by the people. And by the way, if you go to Capernaum today, guess what? You can still see parts of that synagogue. Some of it is still standing. Now, not the third century structure that's popular in the pictures, but if you go to the other side, you'll see the old structure. And that's the one that this centurion actually built. There's parts of this thing that's still standing. Stood the test of time. Left a legacy. This is a man who is well-respected, a man who is loved by the Jewish people, so much so that they were willing to do this. And yet, for all of his respect, for all of his generosity for all of his goodness, for all of his love for the nation. The fact of the matter is, is that he is still an outsider. He is still someone who is outside of the kingdom. And so Matthew doesn't tell us any of that. Matthew's only point here is that he is an outsider. He is a centurion. That's all you need to know for Matthew's case, for the argument that Matthew is making. No matter how decent of a man he is, Friendly, respectful, he's an outsider and he has a servant that is desperately ill and he is a Roman. That's all we know. You don't need to know anything else as far as Matthew is concerned. But he has a servant that's suffering terribly. And yet Jesus, and and again, we see some of his willingness here because Jesus is willing to go to his home. He says, I will come and heal him. You see, for a Jew to walk into the house of a Gentile, that was not allowed because once again, they would become unclean. You may remember in Acts chapter 10, when Peter goes into the house of another centurion in Caesarea named Cornelius, and one of the first things he says is, okay, guys, I'm not supposed to be here, but here I am. So what's up, right? You remember that vision that he had and that God told him, go to the house of the centurion? And so Cornelius was in the same boat as this centurion is. And so once again, we see this 
this willingness in Jesus to take on the uncleanness of the law in order to heal a person. But then something amazing happens, and that is in verse 8, where the satyrian replies, Lord, I am not worthy. You see, all the community thought he was worthy. All the community thought if anyone deserves to be healed, it is this man. But this man recognizes in his own heart, no, I am not worthy for you to enter into my house and for you to even come under my roof. In fact, in the other gospels, we know that it's not even him who says this. He won't even come in the presence of Jesus. He sends one of his servants to go there and tell him this. He says, I didn't wanna come before you because I'm not even worthy to be in your presence, Lord. But I understand what you can do. He says, only say the word and my servant will be healed. What faith. See, he says, I understand this because I'm a man under authority. I say the word, boom, it's done. The measure of someone's authority is whether or not they can simply say the word and it's done. You remember in Genesis chapter one, and the Lord says, and what happens? It does, right? Let there be light, boom, there's light. Let there be this, boom, there is. Ask Art, he was there. And, um, you know, let there be this and it's there. Let there be that and it's there. One thing about the military is that when they say something, when they tell you to do something, you do it, right? I had a, I had a student in my, one of my youth groups that he just had a bad case of senioritis and he had like six months left. It was in December. And uh, he said, Randy, I'm just so tired of this. I want... I heard there's a test you can take called a GED and you can be done with high school and I just wanna do that. And I knew what was going on. I was like, dude, it's, that's not worth it. You got, you got like four months left, just stay the course. I mean, why are, you so, why, do you, why are you so determined to do this? He says, because I'm just ready to be my own person. I'm ready to get out and see the world. I'm ready to do what I wanna do. I'm tired of being under all these people who tell me what to do. I just want to be my own person. And I said, well, what will you do if you don't graduate high school? He says, I think I'll join the army. <laughs> I was like, dude, you better stay in school because you're, you're in for a rude awakening if you think that's what the army is gonna give you. That's, that's the whole point of authority and that's why this Roman soldier says, I know that if you say the word, it'll be done. You don't have to be in my house. You don't even have to be in my presence. You see, proximity to Israel was no challenge for the Savior. How many of you have ever been to Israel? I know one of you have. How many of you have ever been to Israel? A couple of us, okay. Two people, three people, including me in this room, have been to Israel out of how many? Maybe 50, 60, ones in the back, maybe jump up to 70. You've never been to Israel, but you know the same Christ who walked on the roads in Israel. You know the same Christ who has walked on the dirt in Israel. And beloved, I, I, and I gotta admit, I gotta admit, it's pretty cool to walk where Jesus walked. But you know what's even more important is that Jesus is inside of me and is going where I am. That's what really matters for eternity. You see, proximity to Israel doesn't matter. I know it's 
popular today, unpopular today to say that Jesus is the only name under heaven by which people can be saved. One of the ways people argue against that is to say, and, and I've heard this a lot. Have you ever heard this before? The man on the island argument. Have you ever heard this? You've heard this, right? The man on the island. What about the man who's trapped on the island and he's been there his whole life and he doesn't even know how to speak and he, he's never heard the name of Jesus. How is God just in condemning that man? And I used to answer that argument, uh, newsflash, that man doesn't exist. But actually, I was wrong. He does exist. That man does exist. I know him. I know that man. You know that man too. Or that woman. Because you know who he is? He's you. And he's me. I didn't live 2,000 years ago. I didn't see Christ walking in the land of Israel. I don't speak Hebrew. I can read it, barely. But I have no access to many of the things that Jesus had access to in his day. I was the man on the island and Jesus found me. And you were the person on the island and Jesus found you. You see, proximity to Israel doesn't matter. And that's exactly what this centurion is recognizing. He's recognizing that, Lord, I don't have to be close to your physical presence in order for you to save my servant. All I need is your word. And you can heal my servant. That's exactly what we find in, in the rest. And Jesus says in verse 10, Jesus marveled at this and said to those who followed him, truly with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And watch this, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table or fellowship with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. You and I are from the west. Our Vietnamese friends who have been coming, they are from the east, but we have all come together. Our friends here are from the south. Uh, one of them is anyway, is from the south. And yet we have all come together today in order to fellowship with one another with the covenant people of God. And that's exactly what we see. Revelation chapter seven, verse nine. John says, and after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes and peoples, languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. That's the church, beloved. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue. That's the new covenant people. That's the church. In fact, look at John chapter 10, verse 16. John chapter 10, verse 16, it says that I, this is Jesus talking saying that he is the shepherd of the sheep. And look what he says. I have other sheep that are not of this fold and I must bring them also that they will listen to my voice and there will be one flock and there will be one shepherd. Beloved, Christ knows where to find his sheep. Christ knows where they are and he knows where to find them. And so what does that mean for us? Oh, beloved, that ought to ignite our passion for evangelism. That ought to ignite our passion for reaching out. That ought to 
galvanize us and, and make us so excited because we know that there are people out there that God intends to save. And he has given us the mission to go and find them. There was another time when Paul came into a city, the city of Corinth, actually. He was ready to give up. He had faced some hardship once again. He was ready to move on. The leaders of the synagogue had attacked him. And here he was once again having to defend himself. Don't you think that Paul got tired of that sometimes? Everywhere he went having to defend himself over and over and over and over again. And so he's basically giving up. He's ready to move on. And yet in Acts chapter 18, the Lord intervenes and stops him. And I want you to turn there. I want you to see this. Look in, look in Acts chapter 18, verses nine and 10. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you. Why? For I have many in this city who are my people. Paul, you have no idea what I'm gonna do in this city. I have many in this city who are my people. Don't be afraid. No one's gonna attack you to harm you. Stay put. And Corinth is actually the longest place that Paul ever stayed in one place. In fact, it's one of the most peaceful ministries that he experienced in his entire ministry. And many people came to the Lord there because of him. So, and I love this. Don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. God is with us for he has many people in Batesville, Arkansas that he intends to save. So don't be quiet. Don't be silent. Don't try to logically figure that out. Well, God's gonna save them. It doesn't matter what I do. No, God told you to go. Don't use his sovereignty as an excuse to disobey him. That's a weird view of sovereignty. Go, don't be silent. Don't be scared. Don't be, you are invincible until God is ready to bring you home. Do you know that? There's nothing they can do to you. That's what Paul said. I've been all these things. I've done all these things. These things, they've done this to me. They've done over and over. I've been in prison. I've been shipwrecked. I've been beaten. I've been all this. Bring it on, homie. This is all for Christ. I don't care if I die. I don't care if I live. Whatever it is, whether I live or whether I die, I don't care. Bring it on for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. There's nothing they can do to me. And so this ought to make us passionate for the gospel. This ought to make us passionate for evangelism, not the other way around. And so be passionate for the gospel. God is going to bring us in and make a covenant people from every tribe and every language. And how's he gonna do that? Why should we be so passionate for the gospel? Because in verses 14 through 17, we see that Jesus intends to save them. Jesus intends to save them just very quickly. I know you're getting hungry. Here's what we say here in verse 14. Then Jesus entered into Peter's house. And again, this is one of those structures that we're pretty sure we know where it is. 
I've actually stood. You can't really go in the house. You have to kind of stand on top of it. It's this kind of weird structure they got there. Pretty ingenious, actually. But Jesus enters Peter's house and he sees his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever and he touched her hand. Notice again, he's touching. He touches her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. And that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and and he cast out spirits, notice this again, with a word, right? So we're seeing these themes pop up over and over again. With a word, he cast them out and he healed all who were sick. Benny Hinn, eat your heart out. Everybody who came to Jesus got healed. Not just the ones that they could do with camera tricks, but anyway. So, so first of all, he comes to Peter's mother-in-law. She's sick with a fever, and again, Matthew doesn't give a lot of details. We do know rabbinical law says that in order to touch a person who has a fever, you become unclean. So once again, we see him taking on this uncleanness upon himself. And by that, Peter's mother-in-law is healed. And so now she was sick. And by the way, she's still an outsider, but she's a member of the community. She's a member of the covenant. You see, this is a person who should have been able to go to synagogue. This is a person who should have been able to have company in her home. This is a person who should have been able to have all the benefits of the community. And yet because of her fever, she is unable to do that. She is now an outsider, kind of the outside insider, you might say. But it doesn't matter if you're a leper. It doesn't matter if you're a Roman citizen. It doesn't matter if you're a sick mother-in-law. Jesus takes on the uncleanness that they have upon himself. And through that action, they become clean. Through that action, they become whole. And once again, that evening, the whole village comes out. All who are sick, demon-possessed, and he casts the demons out with a word. He heals all who are sick, showing his power over disease, over demons. It reveals his willingness to heal all who come to him. Doesn't matter where they come from. Doesn't matter what malady they're struggling with. He heals them all. But there's something more here. Look at verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the by the prophet Isaiah, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. This is from none other than the great chapter, Isaiah 53. In fact, again, I want you to turn here because I want you to see this. Isaiah 53. And in this great chapter... We find here in verse one, who has believed what he has heard from us, to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. But watch this. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteem him not. So we see the rejection of the servant of Yahweh. And then in verse four, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Now, those words sorrows and grief, sometimes English translations to avoid, uh, avoid some things with, with the word of faith movement and such, they will, they will translate them this way. 
It is a legitimate translation. It can be translated this way, but Matthew obviously understood it to mean that he has borne our illnesses and carried our diseases. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He has carried our, he was, he was born our griefs and carried our sorrows. How did he do this? Verse five, that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds, we were healed. You see what is happening here. We see that Jesus coming back to Matthew chapter eight, Jesus in healing all of these diseases, Matthew is showing us that this is the fulfillment of the servant song of Isaiah. This is the one who has come to be wounded for our transgressions. This is the one who has come to take on the chastisement of our iniquity. This is the one who is going to heal us by the very wounds that will be inflicted. You see, what we're seeing here in all of these healings is the reversal of the curse. You see, when, Jesus, when, when Adam and Eve sinned and the curse was brought into the world, so was death, so was disease. And what Matthew is saying is, is not that all of these people are sick because their sin made them that way. Matthew is not saying that all these people are sick because the devil is attacking them, although in some cases that is, that is the truth. But what Matthew is saying is that when Jesus has come, he is removing the curse. He is defeating sin. He is saving us from our sin. And the proof of that is that when the kingdom of God comes, when the kingdom of God breaks into the world, the curse of sin and the outer darkness from into which we have been cast is thrown away for the light has come. And Jesus is the light of the world by which our sins are removed from us as far as the east is from the west. There's a song by Casting Crowns. Tell me how far is the east from the west. It's the span of one nail-scarred hand to another. Your sins have been removed as far away from you. And the proof of that is that Jesus, when he was alive, he borne all their diseases. He took on their uncleanness and through that action, he made them clean. And beloved, when he was dying on the cross, he took your uncleanness, he took your sin, and through that action, you are made clean. You are made whole. You are a new creation. You are not defined by your sin by your guilt, or by your struggles anymore. You are a child of God in Jesus Christ and dwelt by the Spirit and made a new creation in the new covenant. And beloved, we are a new community, a community that expands throughout the entire world, every tribe, every tongue, every, every nation, I couldn't even understand this dear sister's name this morning, but she's my sister. 
because she's part of the church. Beloved, in the same way, we are part of something bigger. We are part of a kingdom that God has created in Jesus Christ. It's not a building. It's not a cathedral. And the archbishop can say that your sins are forgiven all he wants. He can't do it because he don't have the power to do it. But Jesus Christ does. And he has promised if you'll come to him in faith, you can be saved. I usually have a, a broader conclusion, but I think that's a good place to stop this morning. Because maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, I need to be clean. My sins have made me dirty. I feel the guilt. I feel the weight. I feel the shame. I feel all of that stuff. And I've done a lot of different things trying to alleviate those things. Maybe you're here this morning thinking that. Beloved, I'm here to tell you this morning that Christ has taken that shame. He has taken that guilt and he has removed it on the cross. And if you are here this morning and you will place your faith and trust in him, you can be clean. You can be whole. And you can be saved. And you can be brought in to the kingdom. Father, we thank you for these wonderful truths. We thank you for this wonderful life that Christ lived and through it, Matthew, you inspired him to teach us these truths this morning. And Lord, I pray that if there's one here who has not experienced that cleansing, has not experienced the salvation, who has not been brought into the kingdom, has not been brought into the church, Lord, I pray this morning will be the morning that you will draw them to yourself, that you will help them to know you, that you, you will convince them that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father, no one comes to the kingdom, no one comes to a clean heart apart from you. We are the men and women on the island, Lord. We are the people who so desperately need to hear you. So may your word go out this morning. I'm gonna ask you to stand and just reflect on what we've said. If there's one here who needs prayer or one here that perhaps you want to join our church, perhaps you need to be baptized in water as a confession of your faith, Maybe you need to come here and you need to know, how can I know Christ is my Savior? We want to give you an opportunity to do that. Just bow your heads and reflect on these things, however the Lord moves in you as we play a few courses.